This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by James Heal and Isabel Hardman. Rishi Sunak is at the G7 summit. James, can you tell us what's the agenda? Yeah, sure. Well, it tends to be at the moment the security focus, which is really looming large over these uh, G7 summits. Um, so Russia, the most explicit element of this. So it's about keeping up the pressure on Russia in terms of sanctions and ensuring Ukraine gets the weaponry it needs in its fight. But also the elephant in the room, less explicit, is always China with these things. So yesterday, Japan and the UK signed a new deal, the Hiroshima Accord, which talked about defence, and also, crucially, semiconductors as well. And that's because, obviously, China is threatening uh, to have war in, with Taiwan, and Taiwan has about 60% of the world's um, silicon chips made there. As a result, therefore, obviously, all the Western countries are very much more conscious about their chips. Um, and so, really, I think, although Russia is the explicit threat on the agenda, China is there in the background too. Also, there's a number of kind of domestic considerations for Rishi Sunak and, and UK-focused considerations. Um, and top of them will be meeting um, Modi of India this weekend and discussions about having a free trade deal with India. This is something that uh, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, Liz Truss one to one by Diwali, but obviously there's a huge number of things to consider on this, not least because obviously the UK wants the money from India, but India tends to want visas as well. So it's a kind of the clash of freedoms in terms of free movement to people versus free movement to goods. How much progress is there on that free trade deal at the moment? Can you remind listeners of where we are with that? We're having a diff- it's, I think it's not going as smoothly as some would have liked. I mean, the UK replaced its chief negotiator earlier this month. So I think that's perhaps an acknowledgement that we're going to see the focus on Rishi Sunak and uh, Modi this weekend. And there's personal diplomacy. And so Rishi Sunak, obviously, if you look at his past record, likes to have one-on-one meetings with world leaders. He did this with Macron prior to the announcement on boats. So he likes to have these kind of summits together. Um, and it's something I think he, he does a better format in. He, he's good at flashing smiles and handshakes and, and likes to strike deals. But of course, he can't ignore the problems at home as well. Isabel, President Zelensky is going to be going, I think, going to Hiroshima to meet with some of the world leaders there. And it comes after the US has given a green light to sending F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. Can you tell us where the UK government is on that question of whether to send jets to the front line? So the current line from Rishi Sunak, and he obviously had his own talks uh, with President Zelensky in Downing Street uh, recently as part of Zelensky's uh, tour to to get more help, to get more support for Ukraine. The current line from Rishi Sunak is that the UK is very keen to provide all the support it can, but it's not a a straightforward matter. Um, That's what he told Volodymyr Zelensky when the pair met. Um, And there's some debate over how long it takes, for instance, to train uh, Ukrainian pilots. Uh, Ukrainians, I think it's fair to say, have a a shorter estimate um, than uh, some other UK military sources, for instance. But there is a willingness to appear willing on this and to do everything um, to to give the impression of support because the the view in the government is that that the more you say you're supporting Ukraine, the harder it makes things for Vladimir Putin as well because it underlines that there is a resolve there to, to keep going with the conflict until Vladimir Putin loses. So he cannot have a strategy of hoping that the West gets bored. I think also, just in terms of the 
sort of the choreography of this G7 summit. Once again, Rishi Sunak is, is very keen to, to show uh, that Britain is this nation that is leading uh, in the world, not just on Ukraine, but on economic matters as well. Uh, it's part of his way of saying, look, we are this, this country that, in his words this week, has got Brexit done um, and has this new open uh, leadership role within the world. And James, while at the G7 summit, Rishi Sunak has appeared to make something of a pledge about net migration levels, saying that he'd like them to be lower than 500,000, which would be double what Boris Johnson promised going into the last election. Can you give us some details around that? What did you make of it? I think it's a consideration of what we've seen before, which is that both the Vote Leave campaign and also the manifesto on which you know, the Conservatives in 2019 had, had, had different conflicting issues with them, which was that you know, we wanted to be able to attract talented people to come here, but also there was going to be a need to kind of fulfil jobs which were sort of less well paid. And it's a, it's a really difficult thing, which I think, I don't necessarily think it's perhaps due to a kind of lack of political will. It's just the kind of conflicted demands of, of what Britain in the 21st century uh, wants and needs. And I think that it shows to me that you can have you can have one minister saying one thing, which is the Home Secretary obviously says they want she wants to reduce um, migration, but then obviously you have conflicted demands. So it was interesting to see in the Telegraph today reports that the Education Department have been pushing uh, for increased migration last year, more students to come here. Obviously, international fees pays a lot more, and they have dependents which come through them. I think about one hundred thirty thousand or so. So it really, I think, shows the difficulties of having conflicting government missions coming into account, and also having conflicting government priorities as well. You know, frankly, the thing which is going to decide the next election most, I would still say, is the classic, you know, economic growth, cost of living, and there is a sense. And you can argue whether it's sort of borne out or not that, you know, the ONS will point to, which is that more migration will lead to more growth. Now, perhaps that is not completely sort of correlation causation, but that seems to be the calculation of a lot of people in, in policy making circles. So I am sceptical whether we're going to be able to see the kind of action on this that a lot of Tory MPs and some quite a few Tory voters want in terms of getting that figure down. And it's just an incredible figure. And I think um, one of the great stories, um, for better or worse, of this Conservative government over the last 13, 14 years will be in migration in terms of the changing face of Britain. Some of those, I think, will be quite, uh, you know, pretty positive and pretty welcomed, um, like the Hong Kongers come to the UK. I think that will be very much a bit like Ted Heath's government of the early 1970s, less than the Ugandan Asians. But others, I think, will be uh, a little bit more disputed. And so that will perhaps be one of the great legacies of the past 13, 14 years of the Conservative government will be the changing shift from kind of European migration to migration from outside uh, Europe. And Isabel... Um, at the same time, it looks like Labour's suggesting that maybe it's not a good idea to have migration targets at all. Can you give us the details of what Annalise Dodds says? Tell us what you made of that. This is Annalise Dodds, uh, who is the uh, chair of the Labour Party. She's got a really important policy brief for the Labour Party as well. And she is making the entirely reasonable point that, uh, that setting targets isn't a good idea if you don't know whether you're going to meet them. And it's just worth going back over the the legacy of the Tory target, which was really developed genuinely, I think, on the the back of a, if not a a piece of napkin paper, um, at least some scrap paper that was sort of made up by uh, the Conservatives when they were in opposition um, and then for some reason retained. And then you look at how um, uh, those who actually tried to enforce that target, so Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, 
was having repeated standoffs with anyone who was business secretary, with anyone who was health secretary, with anyone who was representing the university sector. She ended up downgrading this target to what she described in a, a radio interview quite memorably as a comment because she realised that she would not be able to meet it. And she was deeply frustrated because all of these cabinet ministers uh, were, were thwarting her attempts to deliver what David Cameron had asked her to deliver. Um, we've got the alternative tack from Suella Braverman, which is to, uh, to to stick to the target and to suggest, uh, I suppose not unlike Theresa May, but I think she's loved the prime minister in here um, on this, that everyone else is getting in her way um, of meeting it. So Annalisa Dodds, uh, has, has watched that and has said that Labour would, uh, wouldn't focus so much on a target-based approach um, and that actually net migration could increase in the short term, she said. Um, looking at, for instance, uh, medical school places, you might have uh, over, quite a lot of overseas students coming uh, to train at British medical schools, as, as has been the case in, in a long term. Uh, for, for a long time uh, with uh, medical uh, training. Uh, and I think this move away from a targets-based approach also underlines one of the things that um, that a lot of Conservatives as, as well as Labour politicians started to recognise in the past sort of couple of decades that targets really create, um, can, can create some very perverse incentives in, in all sorts of settings and can end up end up with a very strange gaming of the system where, for instance, just as an example, you end up with major labour shortages in key sectors because you want to meet an arbitrary target. It's something that Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, is uh, very interested in. I was reading back through um, some of the work that he'd done on the NHS and he pointed out that um, there's a difference between a measure and a target and that measures are good and that targets are evil. And I think we might be seeing that shift across large bits of the Conservative Party, but certainly not right at the top, and also um, in the Labour Party. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you very much for listening.